Hello and welcome to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. Henry Ford once said, coming together is the beginning, keeping together is progress, working together is success. And while that may sound like an aspirational poster hanging up on someone's bedroom wall, it could also be used to describe the hopes and dreams of our topic today, ductal carcinoma in situ, or DCIS. As always, I am joined by my partner in crime and fellow entrepreneur in this oncological podcasting venture, Josh Hurwitz. How are you going, Josh? I'm doing very well, Michael. How are you today? I am doing very well. Thank you for asking. So today is a a special episode in that it is our first ever listener request. And if you have a particular subject that you want us to talk about, please drop us a line on Twitter at InquisitiveOnk or send us an email. It's a bit old hack these days, but we are very keen to hear your thoughts and recommendations drop us a line at inquisitiveonk at gmail.com. And we look forward to doing more of these listener requests. But this is our first one, and it's on ductal carcinoma in situ, which is not something, Josh, that as oncologists we tend to encounter very frequently. However, I can't tell you the number of times a patient has asked me about DCIS or pre-cancer, as they frequently call it. And... I'm kind of forced to shrug my shoulders and say, mm-hmm. Michael, that was great. I, I love the I love the shrugging the shoulders. But should I get into a bit of the background now? Please do illuminate our listeners and probably me, to be honest, on on what DCIS actually is and why we should care about it. Wonderful. So today I will be talking about both DCIS, so ductal carcinoma in situ, and lobular carcinoma in situ. Mind you, there are subtle differences, and when we talk about our trials after this, it will come into a bit of the fore. So breast cancer, like all the cancers we talk about, are diverse, they have different microscopic appearances, and a diverse biological behaviour, although, like many cancers, are really grouped into a single disease. In situ carcinomas are either ductal, also known as intraductal carcinomas, or lobular. The distinction is really based on growth patterns and cytological features. So DCIS is a non-invasive breast cancer where there's growth of abnormal epithelial cells and the defining feature here, they're confined to the basement membrane, meaning they have not spread. So basement membrane layers disruption. Basement membrane layer disruption changes this diagnosis from DCIS to an invasive breast cancer. So DCIS is considered the precursor for an invasive breast cancer. So the way I see it, you've got a wall. If it goes through that wall, it becomes a cancer or invasive. Although DCIS is heterogeneous, there's different types, there's different biomarkers, morphological features, and clinical potential to progress to invasive breast cancer, the rate has been increasing due to increasing screening through mammograms and detection with microcalcifications. However, the diagnosis does require tissue biopsy, and the treatment of DCIS is multidisciplinary and may include surgery, hormone therapy, and radiotherapy. A little bit of background of incidence. So in women aged 50 to 64, the risk of ductal carcinoma in situ is as high as 88 per 100,000 women. Today, 20 to 25% of breast cancers diagnosed in the US are DCIS. This is increased with the increased screening, which is expected. In pre-screening mammography era, 
less than 5% of newly diagnosed breast cancers with DCAS, which is interesting. Maybe we just didn't have the tech. Maybe, as you'll find out, a lot of them don't progress to cancer, so potentially they just never had any issues, and that's why. When we talk about management, there's different management, and we will usually only see these patients after surgery. So local treatment with breast conserving therapy or a mastectomy. Usually you don't require a central lymph node biopsy in most women, but should be in those with high risk features. So breast conserving therapy, which is essentially a lumpectomy, so remove just the involved tissue, can be utilized in the following criteria. If there's multifocal, so more than one location um, within a confined area, if there is multicentric disease, then it's a relative contraindication to breast conserving therapy. And you've, of course, got to think of the cosmetically acceptable resection and can you actually get negative margins with a lumpectomy. If you go for the mastectomy option, it is curative in 98% of ductal carcinoma in situ patients. So when would you do a lymph node biopsy if they require a mastectomy due to high-risk features? Radiotherapy, is that something you should think about? So the standard of patients treated with BCT or breast conserving therapy, it might be reasonable to admit if advanced aged, extensive comorbidities or small foci of low grade disease. There are significant benefits to doing radiotherapy and that's why we would recommend it and that is that it significantly reduces breast cancer occurrence in the local disease but does not change distant disease or mortality. So there was a 2009 meta-analysis that found a hazard ratio of 0.49, which showed the number need of women needed to treat was 9 to prevent one ipsilateral occurrence. So that's the same side, a recurrence of DCS or cancer. You only had to treat 9 women to get a benefit, which is, Michael, would you consider that a good number? I would consider it a good number. That's what um, I wanted to hear. It's not a leading question at all, but especially given consequences of potential recurrence development into invasive cancer if you're getting a benefit for one patient for every nine you treat it's not bad not bad at all one of the other questions i had when doing my literature reading is what do you define as low risk everyone talks about low risk high risk but no one gives the criteria because i don't think there is a strict criteria so low to intermediate grade of the dcis if it's small, so less than 2.5 centimeters in size, and if it's resected with a widely negative margin of at least one centimeter, I think that's what they would consider low risk and everything else would be moderate or high risk. Systemic treatment, is there a role? So role for chemotherapy, absolutely not. 75% of ductal carcinoma in situs express hormone receptor positive receptors, so either estrogen or progesterone. Those who are ER positive who haven't undergone bilateral mastectomy. They do recommend endocrine therapy rather than observation. And both tamoxifen or an AI are reasonable depending if they're premenopausal or postmenopausal. Understandably, you would not use either of these drugs if they are estrogen receptor negative. Of course, we can't forget about lobular carcinoma in situ. It's a risk factor and a potential precursor to breast cancer. So the risk of developing invasive breast cancer after an LCIS diagnosis is 10 times that of the general population. The incidence of lobular carcinoma in situ is about 1.5% of benign tissue biopsies and up to 2.5% of all breast biopsies. LCIS is detected... LCIS is obviously associated with invasive carcinoma in approximately 5% of malignant breast specimens. 
These lesions are considered high risk because they are associated with an increase in the patient's future risk of developing breast cancer. They are generally managed as a risk indicator rather than a precursor lesion, and not all patients like DCIS will develop cancer. And the cancers that they do develop may occur in either breast and not necessarily at the site of the atypia, which I thought was quite interesting. The increased incidence can be attributed, like DCIS surveillance, is predominantly found in premenopausal women with a median age of 50 and can range from 20 to 80 plus, meaning it can be anyone, really. It is multicentric in up to 80% of patients and bilateral in up to 60% of patients. There are various subtypes, including that of classic, pleomorphic, florid, and others. If it's pleomorphic or florid, LCIS, Usually you will require an excisional biopsy and then you will need to evaluate the surgical margins for the presence of these non-classic variants and re-excision is always recommended. The proliferation of presumably malignant epithelial cells within the mammary ductal system without evidence of invasion in the surrounding stroma or routine light microscopic examination is the definition. So women who have LCIS are at a higher risk of developing breast cancer compared to the general population. How do you stratify this? So the cumulative incidence of subsequent breast malignancy was 11.3% and 19.8% at 10 and 20 years, respectively. Which then comes to the big question, all right, so you've got a LCIS or DCIS lesion. What are the strategies to reduce cancer risk? The first is surveillance with yearly mammography and twice yearly breast examinations. Stop any oral contraceptives, avoid hormone replacement therapy, lifestyle and dietary changes are a must, so no smoking, etc., etc. Surveillance should be for the lifetime of the patient or until when they just won't want any therapeutic treatment for a breast cancer. MRI breasts are the most sensitive modality versus, let's say, a mammogram, but it's less specific, especially in younger women. It has the ability to detect small cancers, which is great, but you have to do that trade-off because MRIs are expensive and time-consuming as well. And there is currently insufficient data using MRI surveillance for women who are at an average risk or intermediate risk. Endocrine therapy as chemo prevention in high-risk lesions is appropriate. And I think that's really the summary of the background of both DCIS and LCIS. So I think if we had to put in a three sentences or less, Michael, what would you say? I would say that they that DCIS and LCIS do represent risks for development into an aggressive cancer, although it is low. It is worth having a treatment in terms of usually surgery, definitely not any form of systemic therapy, and we'll get into the uh, hormone therapy and the particulars of that in a moment, um, potentially with radiotherapy as well. And finally, for my third sentence, it is definitely worth maintaining surveillance on these women uh, because they are at risk of recurrence. How was that for a summary, Josh? That was absolutely perfect. So maybe we should have just had that as a summary rather than my little spiel. <laughs> we probably should have, but uh, we're nothing if not verbose. Josh, you, the, you mentioned the standard of care from the systemic quote-unquote therapy perspective is limited to hormone therapy and my understanding is that the most intense treatment that people will get is tamoxifen would you like to tell us about the trial that cemented that as a therapeutic option 
I would love to talk to you about this trial. And nothing, nothing Josh loves to do on a Sunday morning more than speaking about tamoxifen trials. And tamoxifen is what gets me up in the morning and lets me go to sleep at night. <laughs> okay, so the the trial would I, which I am going to talk about is titled Randomized Placebo-Controlled Trial of Low-Dose Tamoxifen to Prevent Local and Contralateral Occurrence in Breast Intraepithelial Neoplasia. This doesn't have a fancy name, unfortunately, and it was published in 2019. Oh, no fancy name. No fancy name. And... There were some interesting things in their little introduction, which I'll talk about, but the the summary of this particular trial is this. So it's a phase three, it's multi-center. It looks at low-dose tamoxifen of five milligrams versus placebo administered for three years in women, 75 years of age or younger, with an ECOG performance of one or less, who have been operated and have ear or progesterone receptor 1% or more, LCIS, DCIS, or ADH. ADH is atypical ductal hyperplasia, which is another variant you might see. And the question they wanted to ask in this trial is, would you have good benefit to reduce the cancer risk if you give a low-dose tamoxifen versus a high-dose tamoxifen? The rationale for this is, well, why do we care? They say the toxicity of tamoxifen, including venous thromboembolic events and endometrial cancer, is a significant problem and may explain the low uptake of tamoxifen as preventive therapy. Michael, I wanted to highlight this point before I get into the data. Your experience, do you see significant amounts of PEs, DVTs, and endometrial cancer in your breast cancer patients or when you did treat it? That's a very good question, and I would say no, but the confounding factor of that is that we are so aware of it. And so it's something that we tell patients to uh, to look out for. And so we catch it early if it does happen. But in my own clinical practice, I haven't really seen too much in the way of VTEs or endometrial cancer. I really agree to that. I haven't seen it a lot. I always quoted a risk of, I think it's one in a thousand or slightly less than one in a thousand. That's, I think, what our guidelines generally say, and it's always a risk versus benefit, and especially the younger you are, the more likely you're going to talk about, let's reduce the risk, especially if there's a 20% risk of lobular carcinoma in situ having cancer at the 20-year mark. If someone's in their 40s, you're very much going to have that conversation because 20 years later, you know, chemo is harder to tolerate, not that you would do that generally with lobular cancers, and just treatment can be quite rough. And there's also a greater amount of time, we hope, there's a greater amount of time for problems to develop. Exactly. Exclusion criteria for this trial, any prior cancer, any tamoxifen contraindication, mental health problems, pregnancy, grade two or higher biochemical alterations of adverse events, prior use of anti-estrogens or CYP2D6 inhibitors and selective uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Primary endpoint, incidence of invasive breast cancer or ductal carcinoma in situ. Secondary endpoints was incidence of ADH or LCIS, endometrial cancer, other second primary cancers, DVTs, PEs, coronary heart disease, bone fractures, cataracts, menopausal symptoms. Lots of secondary endpoints, but mostly AEs, really adverse events. 
Patients were followed up every six months and had a mammogram and transvaginal ultrasound annually for three years and treat for tr of treatment and two years of follow-up. Patients were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to two of these treatment arms. If you look at the breakdown briefly of the characteristics, about 250 patients in the tamoxifen, 247 in the placebo. Average age was in the mid-50s approximately 50-50 when it comes to pre and post menopausal, slightly slight predilection to postmenopausal, um, and most patients were a tiny bit overweight from a BMI perspective. What we found is that lobular carcinomas were in about 11%, DCIS probably made up the majority, grade one, grade two, or grade three, and most patients had conservative therapy, 84% and 82% in each respective arm, which means they didn't have mastectomies. About 30% had multifocal disease, Michael, which is interesting, and 90 and 70% had ER and PR positive in the tamoxifen arm and 90 and 60% respectively in the placebo arm. Multifocality apparently is, according to one trial from 2007, is a significant predictor of local recurrence in women who receive breast-conserving surgery without radiotherapy. But if you have radiotherapy, which I think is much more standard of care these days, um, you're, you have a significant reduction in the risk of recurrence. So while it might not change the, um, the outcomes, that's more a, a side effect of us being really good at managing DCIS and breast cancer in general. Um, it does change whether you go surgery alone, which you might if you've got a tiny sub-centimetre deposit of DCIS, or surgery and adjuvant radiotherapy. There you go. But again, difficult given that was 2007 and the hazard ratio of giving radiotherapy to reduce ipsilateral currents is 0.49. So, And things have changed, I think, more so than most other um, episodes we've done. We have a lot of clinical experience with these treatments now, so potentially more so than when the studies actually came out, we have a better sense of toxicities, risks, benefits, tolerance, that sort of exactly. thing. Exactly. So patients were screened from 2008 to 2015. Median follow-up was 5.1 years. 14 neoplastic events occurred in the tamoxifen arm and 28 events in the placebo arm with a hazard ratio of 0.48 and a p-value of 0.02. So the cumulative incidence rates for breast cancer, which included invasive breast cancer, DCS, in the tamoxifen and placebo arms at five years was 6.4% in the tamoxifen and 11% in the placebo arm, resulting in a number needed to treat to reduce this of 22. So in consideration of contralateral breast cancer incidence, there were three events in the tamoxifen arm and 12 in the placebo arm with a hazard ratio, Michael, one of the best on our show yet, of 0 0.25. Ooh, is that the best one we've had? I think so. And I got it. <laughs> um, and I get a p-value of 0 0.02. So what you can see, it does definitely reduce ipsilateral and contralateral recurrence in this low-dose tamoxifen arm. The main characteristics when you look at recurrence include invasive in 11 patients of the 14 and DCIS in 3 patients and the placebo 19 were invasive and 9 were DCIS. Majority of the tamoxifen recurrences were ipsilateral and so that was 11 verse 3 and in the placebo arm ipsilateral in 16 and contralateral in 12. Interestingly there was a spread of grade 2 and grade 3 
recurrences. This is just the grade when you look at the histopathology. And the vascular invasion was found to be focally in a couple of them and present in sort of three of them. So not, not a huge sort of vascular invasion was seen. So only about five patients in the tamoxifen arm. ER was still median interquartile range was 83%. So that's still pretty good. And PR was 60%, meaning you still had expression, which is great. And HER2, they found three plus in two patients and eight patients in the tamoxifen arm. K67, interestingly, was higher. So it was about 24% in the tamoxifen and 20% in the placebo. And again, K67 is a good characteristic definer between luminal A and luminal B. It's a number of cells that are actively replicating, which I think is important to see. If I move on to adverse events, because, you know, we kind of know the summary already. We, we, we know the uh, the final five minutes of this of this podcast and this movie. Uh, endometrial cancer was found in one patient, so 0.4% DVT in one patient. Other neoplasms, four patients. Coronary heart disease in two patients. So this is really anywhere between 0.4 and 1.6%. Very low numbers when you look at the number treated with tamoxifen of 250. And then if you look at the placebo, same number of people had DVTs or PEs, same number of people had coronary artery disease, more people had other neoplasms, and the exact same patients had infection. Death, there was one in the tamoxifen and two in the placebo arm. So what am I saying here that if you look at A or B, realistically, I suspect that there's not a difference in the, in the tox profile. Another interesting point before I hand over to you, Michael, is... Of the 12 serious events in the tamoxifen arm and 16 in the placebo arm, it I've already gone through that, but the hazard, the, the, the rate was 0.85 per 1,000 person years when you look at the incidence of these adverse events. The five-year number needed to harm resulting from cumulative incidence was 0.87% with tamoxifen and 0.41% with placebo. And the likelihood of being helpful was 10 times higher, so 218 versus 22, then being harmful. So what does that mean? There's a much better benefit by giving low-dose tamoxifen than using placebo in this cohort of patients. And if you look at the incidence of TVTs and PEs in the standard tamoxifen arm, um, or if we talk about, let's say, endometrial cancer and tamoxifen, it's usually 2.18. So they would expect a 2.7 cases of endometrial cancer on the 20 milligram dose of this of a study. So our data indirectly suggests that the risk of DVTs and pulmonary embolisms or endometrial cancer is 2.5 times lower with the five milligram dosing than the 20 milligram dosing. So the summary of this discussion, Michael, in my three sentences or less, is that low dose tamoxifen does benefit adds benefits to reduce ipsilateral and contralateral occurrence in this precancerous state. The adverse event profile is no different to placebo and is usually for three years. That's what they've done in an ongoing two-year follow-up. And of course, follow-up and surveillance is paramount in this patient cohort anyway. I think they're my three sentences. Anything you wanted to add? No, not really. I think a distinction for many of our listeners who have most experience with high-dose tamoxifen, as you said, at the 20 milligrams. This is low-dose tamoxifen, so in theory the tolerability will be better. The 
uh, rate of side effects, particularly VTEs and endometrial cancers, will be lower because you're having a reduced exposure to what is effectively concentrated estrogen. Exactly. I think one last thing to say before we move to your trial, Michael, is... Uh, I don't know, Josh, you've had your three sentences. Four sentences. Lobular carcinoma in situ. Not a huge number of patients, so only 27 in the tamoxifen and 25 in the placebo. They didn't really talk about recurrences of that. I don't think there was. Again, lobular carcinoma in situ is very responsive to tamoxifen, so that might be why. That's it. Mikey, do you want to talk about your trial? Yeah. Invasive lobular carcinoma, as you mentioned it was just sort of a throwaway line josh but that's just how much knowledge you have bouncing around in that head of yours uh-huh. uh, we don't tend to use chemotherapy because you've invasive lobular carcinomas tend to be very responsive to endocrine therapy and so it stands to reason that their in situ cousins are of the same sensitivity so, so we know tamoxifen works with dcis and I guess the follow-on question, particularly around the early 2000s when a new class of drugs called aromatase inhibitors were really starting to take over in the invasive cancer space, the question that arose naturally was, are aromatase inhibitors also better than tamoxifen in the preventative space, in the DCIS space? And to that end, the NSABPB35 study was born. B35 does not refer to a type of American bombing plane, nor does it refer to a great band from the same era. You're such a nerd. Instead, it refers to... I am such a nerd. Uh, But instead, B35 refers to a double-blind randomized control trial that compares anastrozole with tamoxifen. The obvious question being, is anastrozole better in the preventative stage, as it is in the postmenopausal, and this is in postmenopausal women, should be noted, as it is in the invasive stage. Uh, This was a very, very large trial of over 3,100 women, and they were randomized one-to-one to to receive one milligram daily of anastrozole or 20 milligrams a day of tamoxifen, and that's a slight point of divergence from your trial, Josh, in that uh, patients aren't routinely treated with full-dose, what we would call full-dose tamoxifen in the DCIS space, but they were in this trial. So something to, something to keep in mind when we talk about results. It enrolled patients with DCIS or mixed DCIS and LCIS with no invasive component who were ERPR positive. All of these patients had to be post a lumpectomy so breast-conserving surgery plus radiotherapy. And interestingly, they actively excluded women who had required a mastectomy. So women with multifocal DCIS, very large uh, size DCIS, were actively excluded. The primary endpoints were breast cancer-free interval, or BCFI, whereas secondary endpoints were disease-free survival, ipsilateral breast um, uh, cancer-free interval, contralateral breast cancer-free interval, non-breast second primary, osteoporotic fractures, and overall survival. And you might be asking, well, what's the difference between the breast cancer-free interval and the disease-free survival? The disease-free survival was the time to any recurrence, not specifically breast cancer, the time to a second uh, cancer or death, so a broader term. Uh, The 
demographics well balanced. I won't harp on too much about those. Worth noting, though, that the majority were greater than 60 years old, stands to reason, um, and that will become relevant in the uh, results section. Most had non-palpable tumours measuring less than one centimetre. So we are dealing with women uh, with smaller deposits of DCIS, which, again, is probably a bit of selection bias because they were excluding women who had mastectomies. The median duration of follow-up, and Josh, when I read this, I really didn't know what to do with this information because I don't think we ever see it, because the median duration of follow-up was nine years. So recruitment started in 2006, and the original paper was uh, was uh, published in 2015. Uh, the breast cancer-free interval at five years, the estimates, there was no change between uh, tamoxifen and anastrozole. Breast cancer-free interval at five years for both groups was 96.3%. The curve started to diverge around six years, and by 10 years, there was a slight benefit of anastrozole over tamoxifen, 93.1% versus 89.1%. So we're talking about very, very small margins here. If we divide the cohorts up between those who are less than 60 and those who are greater than 60, we see quite a dichotomy of results. So in patients who were less than 60 years old, the hazard ratio was 0.53, and the p-value was significant at 0.026. However, in those who are greater than 60 years old, the hazard ratio was 0.95, and the p-value was likewise insignificant, I guess, uh, with a p-value of 0.78. Michael, that's a really interesting, unexpected result. Do you know why? Or do they explain sort of why you get that difference? You'd expect people who are older would benefit far more from anastrozole than the younger cohort, unless you look at, I guess, estrogen receptor positivity, maybe an expression of hormones. But what was their take or your take? So uh, my take was really that in women who developed any form of uh, breast-related malignancy, the younger you are, we know this, the younger you are, the more likely you're going to have an aggressive pathology. And so therefore you're more likely to benefit from more aggressive, quote unquote, treatment. So my guess was that women who are younger tend to have a more aggressive biology. And so they tend to have a bit more of a benefit. Whereas women who are older, they're much more likely to be sporadic. They're much more likely to to basically have an upfront permanent cure from surgery and radiotherapy. Whereas there's probably a little bit uh, higher risk if you if you develop DCIS at a younger age. That's a great analysis, Michael. Thank you, Josh. It happens once in a blue moon. So it's a good start for an astrazole, but unfortunately it all falls off the wagon relatively quickly. In terms of the disease-free survival, the hazard ratio overall was 0.89, and this was not statistically significant with a p-value of 0.21. Approximately half of the breast cancer-free interval events that were recorded, it's noted, noted, were recurrences of DCIS. So we're not talking about a recurrence that is automatically an invasive recurrence. We're talking about a recurrence of a precancerous entity that can be treated with further surgery, further radiotherapy, um, and is of a much lower risk, obviously, than invasive breast cancer. There was no overall survival benefit of anastrozole over tamoxifen with a hazard ratio of 1.11. Again, not statistically significant with a p-value of 0.48. In terms of uh, development of second cancers, there was a non-significant difference again, 
but there was a numerically higher incidence of uterine cancer between tamoxifen and anastrozole with 17 events in the tamoxifen group and eight events in the anastrozole group, which I guess is sort of what we would expect. Uh, when you're dealing with this age group, it would not be unexpected to have a handful of patients developing uterine cancer independent of anything else that's going on. Now, in terms of toxicity, and I thought this was quite interesting, Josh, almost as a historical record than than anything related to the trial, the rates of AEs were similar overall. There was a higher rate of osteoporotic fractures in the anastrozole group, but not a huge increase um, in rate with a hazard ratio of 1.38. If you're looking at the actual numbers of events, 69 events were recorded in the anastrozole group versus 50 in the tamoxifen group. I think again, in the population you're looking at, these women are postmenopausal and they're at a high risk of developing osteoporosis and therefore osteoporotic fractures independent of what treatment they're getting, which would explain the uh, relatively similar rates in both groups. There were higher rates of VTEs for tamoxifen, as expected. Uh, 37 patients versus 11 patients had PEs. There were no deaths in the tamoxifen group, whereas interestingly, there was one death in the anastrozole group. Again, probably more of a sporadic independent event than anything else. Uh, But Josh, as you know, as anyone who's prescribed aromatase inhibitors knows, the main problem you have is myalgias and arthralgias. And this is often the thing that impairs patients' quality of life on these treatments. And unexpectedly, in the anastrozole group, there was a higher rate of moderate to severe myalgias and arthralgias compared with tamoxifen. And of course, if you don't know about the myalgias or arthralgias, that's also okay. That's why we do this podcast. Yes, that's very, very true. So myalgias and arthralgias are very much associated with aromatase inhibitors. And I cannot tell you the number of patients who've come in and said, I cannot take this drug anymore. I know it's to prevent the cancer from coming back, but I just lie in bed in pain from top to toe. And it's very, very common. I think patients, arthralgias can be exceptionally debilitating and myalgias you know, limits your quality of life in everything you do, especially your hands and or feet. So exercise becomes an issue. Opening jars, picking up your kids or grandkids all become challenges that you never realized existed. And a lot of the patients are 60. You know, they're not elderly and infirmed. They don't have these they don't have these problems before we start hitting them with the aromatase in here. No, so it's essentially our fault. Well it's Michael's fault, but I'm gonna say our our <laughs> fault. But the, the serious note is we talk about, you know, seventy seven percent had zero to one arthralgias or my elders was eighty nine percent. That's a lot. If it's grade one and you can manage it conservatively, that's great. But you do have to look at the risk and the benefit of giving these drugs of what is not an invasive carcinoma and age and comorbidities and those factors such as DVTs, PEs, osteoporosis. And Josh, you've preempted my final point on this uh, study, the B35 study. Yes, it's like you're in my head or something. But basically, it will surprise probably not you, Josh, and no one listening that anastrozole hasn't taken off in the preventative space for DCIS. There's no significant benefit in either DFS and or overall survival. 
The breast cancer-free interval benefit is moderate at best. And while there are risks of VTEs and endometrial cancers, as we said at the start, practically speaking, these are free, these are very infrequently seen. And we are so mindful and so vigilant of them that we frequently catch them before they become significant clinical entities. Anastrozole is not recommended over tamoxifen. The study did say that for women who are under 60 who have uh, DCIS, it is a preferred treatment, but honestly, I've never seen it. Um, And it is also noteworthy that obviously you can't give anastrozole in women who are premenopausal because it doesn't really work. The mechanism of action doesn't work. So anastrozole in DCIS, not recommended. That's the bottom line on the B35 trial. And Josh, I will, before we go on, talk about the third factor very briefly, the third part of any breast cancer discussion, which is HER2, obviously has had a huge impact in the treatment of HER2-positive breast cancers um, in the invasive setting. And there was a study that, a phase two study from 2011 that looked at the addition of trastuzumab for patients with HER2 expression in their DCIS. Now, unfortunately, much like anastrozole, the more intensive therapy of trastuzumab, single, a single dose trastuzumab, uh, did not result in significant changes uh, in the in overall survival, but also in uh, histologic anti-proliferative or anti uh, or apoptotic, apoptotic is the word I'm trying to say, uh, changes. So it is unlikely that trastuzumab will work in the DCIS setting as well. I think it's also important to remember that the, this is constantly changing. So while a single dose of trastuzumab might not work, someone, some bright spark is going to come up with, let's give four, or give an ADC, or give something else that's novel to see if we can reduce the risk. And this is a constantly morphing field because having receptors to target as the easiest way to try and treat a cancer. Not that any of it's easy, but it's the easiest. You're absolutely right. It's definitely the most personalized way, which is the new the new guiding principle of oncology, I think, is personalized uh, medicine. Josh, would you like to take us out by telling our listeners what we have in store for them next week? Well, next week we have a great episode, and I must confess it's an, it's an omission, both of us, that we haven't spoken about this topic, but we haven't... Cu- it's mainly an omission of Josh. It is. We're going to talk about small cell lung cancer, a very important and vital topic, one of the few cancers that you must treat within a short time frame in the solid organ malignancy spectrum, and some interesting research is going on in this space as well. So stay tuned as we bring you the latest and greatest, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and look at our website. Love squeezing that promotion in. Josh has got to pay his dues. We'll see you next week with our special small cell episode. Bye. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, 
resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonk.com. That's inquisitiveonk.com.